Hey, we're in a series on Romans, and today we're coming to the end of chapter 1, and we're going to take a break from Romans to get into the Believe series, but then we'll, we'll come back uh, to Romans in the new year. But I want to just review a little bit where we have been over this chapter 1. This is the seventh message, so we've, we've spent seven weeks in just chapter 1 of Romans, um, because it's just so packed. And um, But just by way of review, in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, Paul wrote to the Roman believers that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Not from man, not from the law, but a righteousness from God that is by faith, he says, from first to last, which is to say that unrighteous people, garden variety sinners like you and I, can receive God's gift of righteousness, a right relationship with him through simple personal faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then in verses 18 to 23, Paul told them why it is that God, through the gospel, has chosen to reveal this gift of righteousness. And it is this, that because because of the wrath of God that is being revealed right now in the present against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of humans who suppress the truth about God, even though through the majesty and the complexity, but also the intricacy of his creation, God has demonstrated his eternal power and divine nature so that men are without excuse in acknowledging him as the creator. Human beings have chosen to neither worship him nor give thanks to him. And he says that the immediate consequence, as the immediate consequence, they became futile in their thinking, which means that their reasoning capacities were diminished by the fact of having chosen not to acknowledge God and, and their ability to connect the dots, as it were, is diminished. They lost their moral and spiritual compass. Their foolish hearts, he says, were darkened. That is, again, their powers of reasoning were compromised, triggering uh, a spiraling freefall into intellectual, moral, and spiritual darkness. Nevertheless, on their way down, (laughs) they trumpeted, they meaning we, their own wisdom while in the eyes of heaven becoming nothing more than fools. The Bible says that the foundation of foolishness is the assertion that there is no God, that the beginning of wisdom is the reverence of God, the fear of God. And because by nature, human beings, you and I are hardwired to to be worshipers, having excluded the Creator from their worldview, having drawn Him, written Him out of the picture, and rejected Him as the object of their worship, they instead worshiped the creation itself, including themselves. We are hardwired to worship. So if all you can do is worship, and that is what you and I do in a a thousand different ways, and if the only objects of worship left to you are created things because you have rejected the Creator, you become an idolater. 
you have no other option. There's nothing or no one left to worship but that which is created. Well, this morning, in the seventh message in Romans, we come, as I mentioned, at the end of chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 24 to 32. Our title is, When God Gave Up. And will you stand with me and let's read this passage together. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. You may be seated. Cheery topic, eh? I learned to say A in Canada this past week. Cheery topic, eh? There's no way to sugarcoat it. There it is. It's God's Word. So let's dive in. British author C.S. Lewis wrote in his novel titled The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And in that statement, Lewis captured something of the essence of Paul's message in this passage that we're considering this morning. There are three basic kind of discernible sections to this passage. First in verses 24 and 25, then in verses 26 and 27, and finally verses 28 through 32. So let's get into verses 24 to 25, and just allow me to read these again for us. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever." If we're going to begin to understand this passage at all, we must first ask uh, how we are to understand this phrase that appears in verses 24, 26, and 28, which reads, God gave them up. God gave them up. More than likely, Paul borrowed this phrase, gave them up, from Psalm 81. 
where we hear God pleading with the people of Israel regarding their idolatry problem. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. This phrase here in Psalm 81 is the Hebrew version of God gave them up in Romans 1. And we should understand this phrase, God gave them up, as God saying, as C.S. Lewis put it, Thy will be done, man. Thy will be done, woman. God's judgment on godlessness and wickedness is to give us what we want. That's what Paul is saying here. When God gives us up, he says in effect, have it your way. If that's what you want, that's what you will get. So he loosens the restraints and he allows us to experience the logical and just consequences of the choices that we have made. I saw a meme on Facebook recently that that read, you are free to choose, but you are not free of the consequences of your choice. So true. Now remember the context of what Paul is trying to flesh out for us here. He says the wrath of God is being revealed. It's being revealed. And this is the wrath of God to give to us what we want too much. To give us up to the pursuit of the things we have put in place of him. The great tragedy is that God allows us to walk through the door we have chosen. And so listen and consider carefully what this really means. Because it's counterintuitive. Paul is not saying that God's wrath is a consequence of our moral depravity. He's saying the opposite. That our descent into moral depravity is a consequence of God's wrath being revealed in the here and now. The penalty for sin, as it were, is sin itself with all of its inevitable outcomes. Oscar Wilde, the the poet and playwright, uh, though no Christian at all, understood this. He says, when the gods desire to punish us, they answer our prayers. So having exchanged the truth about God for a lie, having worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, God gave them up, it says, in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 
Paul doesn't immediately identify this as sexual impurity. He uses the word impurity. The word he uses appears nine times in the New Testament. In six of those, it is paired with sexual immorality and sensuality. So Paul locates the the source of the impurity of which he is speaking as the lust of their hearts and its expression as the mutual dishonoring of their bodies. It seems that Paul is describing all sexual expression outside of the covenant of marriage. One of the slogans of the sexual revolution that has taken place in the West over the past half century has been this. It's just sex. It's just sex. It's just physical. It's just biological. It's merely the swapping of bodily fluids. What's the big deal? And Paul wants us to know that that it's not just sex. On the contrary, recreational sex outside of marriage is an indication of passions that have been twisted and distorted by sin. They are the expression in our experience of the wrath of God being revealed. God giving us over. God giving us up to that which we insist upon. So the history of the world confirms, I don't have time to unpack this thought, but but. Just think about this with me. The history of the world confirms that idolatry tends toward immorality. In any culture where there is blatant idolatry or idolatry of any kind, you will also find there, in some cases you don't have to look too far, in others you may have to look a little more deeply, but you will find immorality A false understanding of God has always correlated directly with a false understanding of sex and sexuality. And Paul was right. Immorality inevitably leads to dishonor, dishonoring each other. In verse 26, Paul goes on and he says says next that God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions passions. Verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verses 26 to 27 represent a new cycle. God reveals his wrath against all the godlessness of man by again loosening the restraints even further. By dishonorable passions, Paul is speaking specifically, isn't he, of homosexuality. And by the way, this has been a very difficult message for me to prepare. Not an easy topic to address. Most churches just avoid this topic. These 
two brief verses represent, I think, the clearest teaching in the New Testament on this topic. And it's just two verses. But it's very, very clear. Let me just say, before we dive into this topic, that that none of what I'm going to talk about this morning, none of what Paul says here, absolves us as Christians of loving those who are caught in this kind of sin. We are called and we are responsible and we are accountable to love. This past week I received a message, uh, a text message from um, my cousin uh, in Florida. Uh, She's a high-level executive with the Boys and Girls Clubs. Very successful in her professional career. Um, when she writes to me, if she wants to talk about, I always know, I always know the, the depth of seriousness because when she writes to me and just wants to talk about stuff, she says, "Hey, cuz." That's the way she begins. But when she wants to talk about something serious, she says, "Pastor Jim." <laughs> and this time she said, "Pastor Jim." And she was uh, she was asking for my counsel. She moved into a new position and uh, inherited a new staff, people she did not personally hire. One of them happens to be an ordained minister who refers to himself as the anointed one. And <laughs> and she, he doesn't want to take direction from her, so... I'm the, I'm the other ordained minister she knows personally. So she says, what do I do with this guy? And I said, tell him he's not going to be the anointed one. He's going to become the unemployed one. <laughs> she said, I don't know if that's going to happen. So help me. So I began to ask questions. You know, is, is he older than you? No, he's younger than me. Uh, is it because you're a woman? No, it's not because I'm a woman. She said, I think it's because I'm gay. And my cousin is a lesbian. And in, in the course of the conversation, I had the occasion to say to her, uh, Nita, you know that as a Christian, I can't approve of your lifestyle. And she said, I know. But I said, I hope you know that I love you. And she said, I know. I know that you love me, and I love you too. See, I think that's, that was so precious to me, to hear her say, I know that you love me. And that's right where we need to be when we approach people who are, who are stuck, who are trapped in this kind of sin. It's essential as we approach this topic that we do two things. First, we must seriously consider the biblical teaching. I don't think that God's word changes according to the culture or the times. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word does not, cannot, will not change. 
regardless of what is going on around us, regardless of what's going on in the world, regardless of the contradiction of humans against God, his word still stands. So we've got to take it seriously. And second, it's essential that we recognize that while some cultures have comfortably tolerated and even endorsed homosexual expression, God calls it detestable. God calls it an abomination. The Old Testament law given by God through Moses specifically and assertively prohibits homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22, for example, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So let's not forget that the kind of life described in verses 26 and 27 can never be understood from a biblical perspective or by biblical Christians as an acceptable alternative lifestyle. Somehow acceptable to God under certain circumstances. Paul wants us to view it only in this context as yet another deeper evidence of the wrath of God being revealed in giving us over to what we, in our depravity, desire. One of the things I said to my kids on occasion as they were growing up, never confuse what is legal with what is moral. Never confuse what is legal with what is right. God gave us our sexuality and our sexual drives as a good and wholesome gift. The biblical writers affirm, endorse, celebrate that gift frequently and in a variety of ways. But when it is distorted and when it is redirected toward a person of the same sex, it abandons its God-given purpose and it becomes a dishonorable and dishonoring passion. Observe the adjectives that Paul uses, dishonorable, unnatural, shameless. See, as we have seen, a major theme of Romans 1 is mankind's response to God's self-disclosure through his creation. And I noticed this week as I was studying this that Paul actually employs the biological designations male and female here rather than men and women. Our translation says men and women in the Greek in which Paul wrote this, it's male and female. And I think it's very possible that he chose those words in order to reinforce his emphasis on the natural created order of things. But perhaps also to call to mind the creational formula in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, where we read that God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Paul says in verses 26 to 27, They exchanged natural relations for those contrary 
to nature. Their women exchanged natural relations. For those that are contrary to nature, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. The word translated nature means what it says, according to nature. The phrase translated contrary to nature was widely understood in Paul's day as describing something that was abnormal on the face of it, that that ran against the underlying constitution of someone or something. And we might think of the expression, the laws of nature or, or of creational design and order. That's what Paul is describing here. See, it would be a stretch, to say the least, to argue that Paul was asserting here that homosexual expression represents anything short of a perversion of the creational nature and creational command given to us by God as males and females made in his image. And yet argue they will. So our interpretation of these verses, our confidence in these verses, is crucial in the contemporary debate. Even though there's nothing in the text that suggests that Paul had only a limited scope of homosexual action in mind, the, the theological wing of the gay lobby continually raises a number of arguments, some of them quite sophisticated, that challenge the traditional understanding held by Christians for over 2,000 years and by Jews for several thousand years prior to that. But let me just point out the most common of the arguments that come, theological arguments that come from the gay lobby. First, they, they will claim that Romans 1, 26 to 27, this passage itself is irrelevant on the grounds that its purpose is neither to teach sexual ethics nor to expose sin, but rather its purpose is to portray the outworking of God's wrath. And they're correct in saying that Paul's purpose here was not to teach sexual ethics. However, however, if a certain sexual conduct is presented as the consequence of God's wrath, we have to conclude very logically that it is displeasing to God. Secondly, they will argue that Paul was thinking only about homosexual activity between adults and young people, which was very prevalent in those days, especially in the pagan temples. And that Paul opposed it because of, only because of the humiliation and the exploitation experienced by the young people involved. It's, it's an argument that makes some sense, but it runs counter to overwhelming historical evidence. And all one can say in response is that there's absolutely nothing in the language Paul uses here to suggest that that is what he had in mind. A third argument they raise is that Paul's referring only to promiscuous homosexual sex and not to subtle long-term loving relationships, homosexual marriages, for example. It's a speculative argument, but again, there's nothing in the text that would point to anything that would validate that claim. Contemporary statistics, in fact, indicate that settled, long-term, loving relationships between homosexual partners are quite rare. It's not to say that there aren't any, but they're rare. The gay community, in fact, experiences um, much higher rates 
much higher than average rates of promiscuity, depression, drug abuse, domestic violence, and even suicide. Fourth, there is the question of what Paul actually meant by his use of the words natural and contrary to nature. The major argument of the homosexual movement in our time has now become that homosexuals are born homosexual and heterosexuals are born heterosexual. Not a shred of scientific evidence of that, lots of anecdotal evidence. So what is sexually natural to a heterosexual and what is sexually natural to a homosexual are two different things entirely, they would say. One's orientation is not a matter of choice, but was instead chosen for them by the genetic lottery. So they will say that on the basis that that those whose behavior Paul is condemning here are not in fact homosexuals, but rather heterosexuals committing homosexual acts, that is to say that they abandoned their own natural relations, their own natural relations, and exchanged them for, for relations that were contrary to their nature. Not to nature itself, but to their nature. But again, that distinction would have been entirely foreign to Paul's world of thought, completely foreign to the time in which he lived and ministered. Nor again is there anything in the text that would validate that claim. I know this is a hard issue. But look, to to interpret the word nature as meaning my nature, or the adjective natural as what seems natural to me, would require doing violence to what God has clearly revealed. We just saw the creational statement in Genesis 1. God created them male and female, gave them the blessing and the command to be fruitful and multiply. The creational foundation of marriage is one biological male and one biological female in a lifelong, sexually exclusive, one flesh relationship. Jesus himself confirmed that in Matthew 19. In answering a question about divorce, Jesus quoted from both Genesis 1 and 2 when he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. A fifth argument that's raised by the gay lobby is that Jesus himself never actually condemned homosexuality. And they're right on that. But they would say, therefore, it must not have been, he must, Jesus must not have considered a sin. Jesus must not have considered it an issue to be addressed. But in fact, there is a wide range of topics on which we have no record of Jesus commenting. It doesn't mean that he never did. We simply have no record. And yet we have his clear, positive, and definitive statement there in Matthew 19, which I just read to you, as well as this resounding declaration in Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Paul goes on. 
And he says that they received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The word error literally means wandering. And it points to, in context, it points to this lifestyle that he's describing being deviant, being a departure from God's design and from his truth. Paul doesn't specify what this penalty is. He doesn't define it. He only says that they received it in themselves. And we, we should note here that due penalty doesn't apply only to homosexual behavior. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul wrote, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There is something about the constitutional fabric of human beings that when we sin sexually, we sin against ourselves. And we would say, someone would say, well, no, no, I wasn't sinning against myself. What we did was consensual. What are you talking about? It's just sex. It's just biological. And Paul says, no. There's an inner deviation that's happening each time you engage in that way. Robert Mounts is a New Testament scholar. He's the former president of Whitworth University in Spokane. And he made this comment that I thought was insightful. He said, sin is a virus that invades the human soul and takes its toll throughout a person's entire being. In verses 28 to 32, we come to the third cycle, and we read here that God gave them up to a debased mind, a debased mind. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, Paul makes four comments here about those with a debased mind. First, he says they did not see fit to acknowledge God. And there's a, there's a play on words here in verse 28. It's a bit awkward in English translation. But it might go something like this. Because people did not approve of God's knowledge, he handed them over to unapproved minds. Or in more common language today, we might render it this way. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to unfit minds. And again, Robert Mounts offered this comment on verse 28. Truth rejected leaves its mark. One's ability to think clearly about moral issues is undermined. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. God gave them up to a debased mind. See, sin not only affects our affections, resulting in idolatry, or our senses, resulting in sexual immorality, but it diminishes our processes of intellectual reasoning, our capacity to think clearly, to think rightly. To think 
as God thinks. Second, Paul says of them that they do what ought not to be done. And verses 29 to 31 gave us a, a pretty prodigious, thoroughgoing list, wouldn't you say? And it would seem that Paul was attempting to convey all of the different forms that sin can take. No one can escape the effects of God's wrath. Everyone is affected. You are, I am, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The third thing he says of them is that they know God's righteous decree, which is that those who practice such things deserve to die. You say, well, that's harsh. God said it, I didn't. See, people in general have a sense of what is right and wrong. People understand at least this, that wrong actions deserve punishment. And so with regard to sin, their conscience condemns them. Your conscience condemns you. My conscience condemns me when we sin. The wage of sin, we'll hear Paul say two chapters hence, the wage of sin, the due penalty of sin, is death. First, death of a spiritual nature, and then at the end, physical death itself. And yet, knowing all of that, knowing all of that, still they give approval to those who practice them. I couldn't help but think of Genesis chapter 3, that that Eve in the garden saw that the fruit was good in all of its many facets. And so she ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. 19th century South African writer and pastor Andrew Murray accurately wrote that we are not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in the doing of those things that we know have their issue, have their outcome in damnation. See, when we willfully and when we persistently reject God's word and his authority, the result will be a heart that is so hardened, that is so perverse, that we enjoy and are entertained by the sins of others. And it would seem that in this scenario that Paul has painted for us, at that point we have sunk to the lowest level of sinful depravity. And so it's unsettling to realize that Paul's list in verses 29 to 31 describes the content of the movies that we enjoy and the television series that we binge watch in our homes every night. You guys don't look happy about that. (laughs) See, the essence of Paul's portrayal of debased humanity lies in this, the antithesis between what people know and what they do. They know God, they suppress the truth in righteousness, in unrighteousness. And and God's wrath, Paul says, is directed specifically against those who deliberately suppress by their actions, by their words, by their thoughts, God's revealed truth and exchange it for the lies that serve our selfish purposes. I wonder this morning, do do you see yourself anywhere in this passage? 
any of that describe you? If you can't, you haven't been listening. You haven't thought about it quite enough because each of us is represented here in some way. Each of us has sinned. Each of us has failed to meet God's righteous standard. But here's what we do. And you may have been doing it even while I was speaking earlier. We often strenuously judge and condemn others whose sin patterns happen to be different than our own. But before God in our sin, apart from the gospel, apart from the salvation that is offered in Christ, we stand condemned. And that is why we are in such need, such desperate need of the gospel which tells us of a righteousness from God that is based not on our ability to fulfill the law, but on faith in the one who did that for us on our behalf. The reason that the gospel is such good news is that our lives are such bad news. That judgment is such bad news. That hell is is such bad news. But thank God that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were hostile towards him, he died for us. While we were helpless to save ourselves, he died for us. And that's our way out. That's our only way out. The gospel of Jesus Christ is God's only solution for the predicament of our sin. So I ask again, do you see yourself in the list? Do you see yourself in the passage? If so, I hope that you're trusting in Christ today and and that you've reached out to him because the gospel really is the very best, the greatest news of all time. Let's pray. Lord, you have hemmed us in. You've allowed us to go our own way. You've, you've given us what we want. You've, you've allowed us to pursue the fulfillment of our desires to our own detriment, that we would understand how, how separated we are. And Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters, I pray for those who may be here who have not yet trusted in you, that we would take these things seriously, that we would consider the gospel, that we would consider the the immense cost that was offered up at the cross to pay the ransom for our salvation, to pay the penalty, to make the the adequate sacrifice to cover all of our sin for all time. But Lord, help us to live in thankfulness, in gratitude, to be worshipers of you, because you you alone are worthy. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.